We are reading from Acts 24, verses 1 to 27. Five days later, the high priest Aeneas went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented this, his case before Felix. He was, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and every, and every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge that this is the profound gratitude, but in order not to be weary, you further, um, I would request that you be kindly enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about the charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusations, asserting that these things were true. When the governor meant, uh, motioned for him to be speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly take my defence. You can easily verify that no, no more than 12 days ago I, was, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anybody at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And, this cannot, and they cannot prove you see the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they called a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written by the, in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God and these men themselves have that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my own conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in disturbance. But there were some Jews of the province of Asia who brought who were brought here to, before you to bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these are the ones who should state that the crime they have found in me when I stood before Sandarian, unless there was this one thing, I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am here on trial today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned and the, the proceedings. When the sire, the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to keep him some, free, some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke without faith in, about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was, was succeeded by Faustus, for, for Festius, and, but because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Uh, this week, I've been reading this book. It's called Original Sins, a memoir by Matt Rowland Hill. It's a memoir of a man who grew up in a Christian family, um, interesting to me because he's the child of a pastor, um, and he strongly rejected his faith, he still does do that, 
and became a drug addict. Now, it's amazing to me, uh, given how few conservative Christians there are, that this book should get a mainstream book deal. It's like a tell-all thing. But then it's all things like are familiar to me and you like, my parents made me go to the prayer meeting. Shock horror. Uh, anyway, I guess it is beautifully written, so I commend it as like a very well-written book. Um, but it uh, demonstrates what we have been seeing in the book of Acts, that the story of the first Christians, that people in power really love trying to criticise Christianity, however unfairly. It's just built into the system that people love doing that. There's quite an annoying bit of the book, well, annoying to me, where Matt Roland Hill decides to reject his faith, and he says it's based on this list of questions that he says apparently Christians can't answer. If you were to read them and you've been in our church for any length of time, you'd think, mm, no, these are all questions that hundreds of Christians have been considering for about 2,000 years. They're not new and they're not particularly clever. I'm not sure what he's, if he realises it, but it's clearly true from the book that his decision to reject the faith actually had to do with finding his family and his church and the Christians around him. They were the problem, as well as you know, his own problems, which did lead to him becoming a drug addict. There's not very much self-reflection on that. It's an interesting read, so if you want to read it, I'd encourage you to give it a go. Although when you get to his big questions bit and you find it disturbing, come and talk to me. There are plenty of answers. He just didn't find them. But what the book shows us is this, really, that the real problem was not the message, but the people. Now, we've seen in this bit of Acts, Paul, one of the Christians, uh, one of the first Christians, he's on his journey to Rome, the centre of the known world, because he wants to make Jesus known there. He's passed the baton of spreading the gospel to churches in Acts chapter 20, normal groups of Christians like the ones here. We are the ones who do this work now of taking the gospel to the world. It's not a special group of apostles anymore. And what we're seeing in this last section of the book is what does that baton passing look like? If you're going to do what Paul is doing of taking the gospel to the world, what does it look like to pass the baton? What type of life will you get if you follow Jesus' example and Paul's example of wanting the whole world to come and know God? Now, we've seen over the last couple of weeks that there is no true charge that can be brought against the message of the gospel. It fulfills every desire. The message itself is utterly pure and good and just. That's the case for the message. That's where Matt Roland Hill is, in my humble opinion, wrong. But it is right that Christians who must share their faith, who we are commanded to do that, we can do that in such a way as to undermine the goodness of the message. People will hear what you are as much, if not more, than what you say. Can I say as an aside, this has nothing to do with that. That's particularly true if you're a parent, which comes on a lot in Matt Roland Hill's book. And that's where this bit of Paul's story is interesting. He's under accusations, false accusations, but we discover in this bit of Acts what he is able to say to defend himself. And I think as we hear his defense, what we're learning is 
How can I do my best to make sure that the only offensive thing is the message? How can I make sure people are not being put off by me? How can I not back down, just fold, but also seek to win people rather than putting them off? That's a hard balance to get, isn't it? And as we hear Paul sort of um, uh, accused uh, and told to give his case to this local governor, we have Paul's defence. And I think that's recorded for us because we're Christians and someday we will be accused and smeared and criticised. That just goes with the territory we're learning in Acts. But we should be able to say these things in our defence. Here's the first one. Paul's able to say, I was wise. Paul is able to say with a clear conscience he hadn't gone to start a riot. He hadn't gone to stir up controversy. Now, undoubtedly today, there is anti-Christian feeling in the air. It's nothing like what many Christians in the world are experiencing, okay? We, uh, in Britain, we are not persecuted, and not in America either. Christians are not persecuted here. But... Many people in our church will experience, much more than me day to day, you know, walking on eggshells about what you feel you can say about your faith at work. Or really feeling hostility from a family member who thinks that you've wasted your life. I felt a bit of that hostility, nothing like what lots of you are experiencing, but I felt quite a lot of it in reading that book. You know, amid your publishing house has thought taking the apparent mistakes of pastor's parenting and turning it into copy for money is a good way to engage with the world. It's like an anti-Christian thing that's just sort of in the air. There's no point moaning about it, and there's no point boycotting it. It's just true. But there are some times that Christians who are claiming to be in trouble with the law or authority, and that is happening because they have deliberately behaved stupidly, so they can feel like they're doing the right thing. Uh, Paul often discussed the gospel in Jewish places and acts. He befriended Jewish people, he talked to them, sometimes they've got them into trouble. But realising it was very sensitive in Jerusalem, the centre of the Jewish religion, he had not done that. He was wise. He deliberately did not stir up trouble, even though it would have been legal for him to do it. Now, now there is a risk that on the basis of being wise, Christians never speak up about their faith. We'll come to that later. But what I think more often happens is that Christians don't live differently in their normal lives, in their communities, in their societies. We just live the same as everyone else. Then we feel bad. We don't have any opportunities to share the gospel because our lives aren't provoking any questions. So then we create a way of speaking just by being stupid. And then everyone's talking about us. And then we get to feel like we're doing the job. Oh, woe is me. I'm persecuted for being an idiot. So I do not think today that Paul would be, for example, protesting pride marches or holding banners outside the mosque 
or verbally disapproving of the sinful actions of people that he worked with in the workplace. That's not wise. It's not helpful for winning people. To be clear, it should be legal. I'm not saying uh, we should not be worried when the government starts to crack down on that type of thing. I'm definitely not advocating for laws that stop people doing unwise things. And even when I think people have been unwise, I think it's our job to stick up for their freedom to be unwise. That's the type of society we want to be in. But for us, if we want to join in with what Jesus is still doing, of taking the gospel to the world, we should not aim for controversy. It would be best to consider how can controversy be avoided. So Christians, let's be very careful about throwing our weight behind political campaigns, even ones we mostly agree with. It's not wise to alienate all the other people on the other side of that campaign for the gospel, which is the most important thing. It is wise to open the door for the message about faith in Jesus to get to as many people as possible. And sometimes, often I think, that means choosing not to stir up controversy about other things even if they're important to us. So Paul is able to say, I was wise. Second thing he was able to say, I was clear. I admit, he says in verse 14, I do worship the God of our ancestors as part of what they, my accusers, call a sect. I believe the Bible, and I accept there will be a resurrection of the wicked and the righteous. Now, in some ways, he's just underlining to this Roman judge that his Jewish accusers share some of the same beliefs about the Bible and about the end of the time when they believe the world will be judged. And in fact, some of his accusers believed that and some of them didn't. So he's doing quite a clever thing there, as he's done before. He's bringing up the thing they disagree over so they can all like fall out about it and leave him alone. Um, Doesn't work, but quite a clever thing to try. But he is also then here in court in front of a scary, corrupt man ready to say... I am clear about this. I am not going to wriggle off the hook on this. You know, they're calling me a sect. If that's what being clear on this is, okay. They can think of me as a fundamentalist. You can think of me as a fundamentalist. But I am not backing down that Jesus rose from the dead and he is going to judge the world. In fact, I'm using this trial as a platform to say that. I don't know if you have ever been in trouble for sharing your faith. I never really have, certainly not in a serious way. Um, Some people in our church really have, you know, in countries that they come from. I think, though, when you're in trouble, the temptation is this. Powerful people want you to say, just say that you didn't say it. You know, or you did say that, okay, we understand, but just back off it now. It's okay. We can calm this whole thing down if you just step away from the controversial opinion. When you read records of people disciplined in their workplaces, for example, for trying to speak the truth, and some of them may have been unwise, I don't know anything about that, it's not enough that they apologise for being offensive. Their employees are always saying, oh, could you just say that you didn't say that, that you didn't mean that? Back off the truth. 
at least say you didn't really mean it. You know, we, you don't want people to think you're one of those crazy fundamentalist Christians in a sect. So back down. Christians are always under pressure to alter what you say. Now you're in front of a more powerful audience. And Paul is able to say this. The truth I said to them is the truth I say to you. There is a day when everyone will be raised and judged. I said it then. I'm repeating it now. And of course, this was a risky place to stand and say that. Because Roman governors had the power to punish him. And I guess Roman governors were not all fans of being told that there was one God who was going to judge them one day. I mean, it's not an uncontroversial message in a dictatorship. But Paul was able to say, I was clear, I still am clear. That's what I said, and I'm repeating it to you. I am not backing down now I am in front of someone more powerful. And if that makes me you think makes you think I'm a fundamentalist or part of a sect or whatever, so be it. In a culture where Christians, I think, tend to be told to worry about their reputation, either as Christians or just like in your workplace or in your neighborhood, you must Maybe it's a class thing, I don't know. You must have people think you're respectable. It would be terrible if people didn't think that. The real temptation will be not to be clear when you're in front of someone powerful. Paul says, I was clear. Third thing he says, I was obedient. By the way, Paul does a clever thing here. This is as an aside, but I think it's a good little tip to learn. Instead of completing his talk about Judgment Day with a sort of, like, meaningful look at Felix, which he could have done, could have been like Felix, everyone is going to be judged someday. He doesn't do that. Well, we'd have recorded that he does that. I think he would have said. Or even saying, right up in his face, everyone's going to be judged someday, Felix, so you'd better repent, you wicked Roman governor. See how he finishes his speech. I think it's very clever, verse 16. Because of the judgment, verse 16, I strive to keep my conscience clear before God and man. I think that's very clever and a good little tip. Judgment is a tender issue. Discussing God's judgment is often where we can really get people's backs up. Well, we can't ignore it. We must be clear, like Paul. We mustn't steer around it. But you see what he does? He allows Felix to see he's not being judgmental by saying, oh, this is how the idea of God's judgment affects me. I keep my conscience clear. Believing I am accountable to God affects me in this way. Particularly if it's something people admire or think is right. Sometimes it's much better to say, I believe God will judge us all. That's why honesty matters to me. I believe God's going to judge us all. That's why I try and live with integrity. That's probably usually better than saying, I believe God's going to judge us all, so you'd better sort your life out. Anyway, that's just a little tip. But he also says, I had a clear conscience before God and man, saying, I obeyed the law. I can stand here with a clear conscience and say, I did not break the law. And by that, he doesn't mean God's law. He means the Roman law. 
I was obedient. Now, certain types of Christians hear that and immediately jump to sort of marginal cases where Christians have to break the law because obeying the law would mean disobeying God. Yes, of course that's true. The law says don't pray, you must break that law. If the law says don't gather with other Christians, you must break that law. You know, yes, that's right. But most of the time, being radical as a Christian in our discipleship means respecting the authorities God has put in place so that we get a hearing for the gospel, even if they're bad authorities, and even if obeying them has great cost to me. That's what happens to Paul at the end of this story. Felix was famously corrupt. He's calling Paul in to speak to him, pretending he keeps wanting to be evangelised, when in fact what he wants is a bribe. And I think I'd be tempted to think, well, God's told me I'm supposed to go to Rome. Shall I just get some of my friends to bring in some money to get out of prison? Because that's preaching the gospel, and preaching the gospel would be better. But Paul just seems to assume the right thing to do is to obey the law, not to pay the bribe, even though that means stuck under house arrest for two years. He keeps talking, even though he knows Felix is just pulling him back up for a bribe. Oh, well, another opportunity to explain the gospel. In the meantime, I obey the law. Some of our mission partners face this problem starkly. One of them is telling me not very long ago about an unfair tax that the country they were in suddenly put on foreign nationals living there. And some of the people who were there as part of her team started making a big fuss about that. Started saying, we shouldn't have to pay this, it's very unfair. And she was like, yeah, it is unfair. But we're not here to change the tax law. We're here so people can hear about Jesus. So let's just pray and raise some money and pay the tax. There's definitely a call here for Christians to obey the law, not to cheat on our tax returns or take unpaid for perks at work or whatever way you're tempted to be dishonest or behave slightly illegally. But there is a wider idea at work here. And it's constantly surprising to me how we get this wrong. We get very angry with being badly treated We get very cross if we're expected to obey unfair authority because of how it affects us without doing the Paul thing and thinking through what God might be doing in that situation to open doors for the gospel. How many Christians, for example, leave a job with a bad boss without a second thought? My boss is bad, I'm miserable here, I want to go somewhere else. Rather than thinking through Is grace with this bad boss actually something God's doing to open up gospel opportunities? It might not be, but it might. I have relationships in this place where I'm just beginning to learn to talk about Jesus and connect with people. You know, maybe don't leave then. Oh no, but we're very angry. We're angry about having to obey. And Paul doesn't. We certainly don't have recorded, he gets angry. Even though he's stuck under a house arrest for two years, he just is obedient and looks for what God is doing. Now, you're allowed to make changes in life. Of course you are. If another, something better comes along or you want to move job, we, we can't bind each other's consciences like that, of course. But listen, it is a mistake to put all my energy into changing my situation rather than patiently submitting 
to even unfair and corrupt leadership for the sake of something more important, people hearing about Jesus. Uh, There's a few caveats I guess I want to make there. There may be important moments to speak up and act if corrupt leadership is harming other people. I do think Christians are called to have that sort of prophetic voice to defend people who need defence. And it's very important to speak up loudly if you think there's corrupt leadership in the church. So do not hear this talk as me saying, hey everyone, just be obedient to me. Definitely not. But generally, in society, we submit and we obey and we take the hardship that comes from sinful people leading in a way as we expect sinful, not getting self-righteous about our rights, not demanding the respect we deserve, not dwelling on how unfair it is to me, but reading every situation through the lens of what will get a hearing for the gospel, which is usually, as far as we can, without disobeying God, it is usually obeying authority that opens up the hearing. Two things I'm aware of as I say that. First is this. In a city like Liverpool, where we tend to, in a good way, we tend towards requiring social justice from our leaders, that's the way people are politically wired here, We are therefore prone to complain loudly if we do not get that. To say, it doesn't work. I don't trust our leaders. I'm politically disenfranchised. Let me go on the internet and complain about that. And that can spill over into an attitude to all sorts of authorities to constantly be in this loop of assuming people are against us and so demanding our rights. Rather than saying, okay, These people are wicked, but what might God be doing with me here to spread the gospel? That will also keep you calmer, by the way, than internet warrioring. We are citizens of a different city, actually, and so we have a different set of priorities, and so we read every situation to say what's best to get a hearing for Jesus. We here in Liverpool particularly, I think, are going to find that hard because we're not big into authority. Second thing I'm aware of is that there are some people in our church living in really terrible situations due to poor government, unbearably awful workplaces, or victims of the terrible systems in this country that leave you unable to work, unable to move on in life, terribly unfairly. And I want you to know if that's you, we are on your side and we are doing everything we can to bring change for you. But in the meantime, while that's beyond our power, I reassure you God has something in his gospel plan for you to do. Somehow it will not be wasted time. As far as you can, obey the law and look for what opportunities you have to serve Jesus. Last thing Paul says, I was brave. This is the last thing Paul could have said. Felix and his wife are ready to listen, and so Paul speaks. And he speaks to him in verse 24 about faith in Christ Jesus. That's what he wants him to have. He wants him to trust Jesus. But I love the summary we get. Paul talks about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. I love that. It's like he picks 
the things about the gospel that are most going to get on Felix's nerves. The particular ways that will challenge Felix. He really is not ready, uh, he's not scared to speak truth to power. This corrupt Roman leader who does what he likes and thinks how he runs everything. Paul's like, well, repentance for him is going to mean talking about righteousness, talking about self-control, and him realising there's a judgment to come. Paul pipes up about the bits of the gospel that are likely to get on Felix's nerves. And that scares Felix, interestingly. He's afraid and says, that's enough for now, you may leave. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if you've ever shared the gospel with someone and had that uh, response. Uh, You know, sometimes when we do door knocking around here, we get that response with a more colourful way. Uh, That's enough for now, you may leave. But that's how the evangelistic encounter ends. He spoke generally, inviting Felix to faith in Christ, but then he wasn't scared to really confront the issues that Felix needed to confront. Now, I've talked a bit today about Liverpool culture. There are lots of people visiting us today. Uh, Lovely to have you all here. And you come from other places, and maybe the culture is different, where you're more respectful to authority there than we are here. And that obedience bit I've just talked about made a lot of sense to you. But just to be clear, we're not obedient to the authorities for the sake of it. We are obedient to the authorities so that when the time comes, we'll be able to bravely speak out against the sin of powerful people and call them to trust Jesus. So say you work in an environment where there's lots of wealthy, powerful people, people who are doing well out of the current systems and the way things run. Well, I guess then obedience to that system sounds great to you. But you are in that system not to smash the windows so you can like get profits from rich people like me might want to do here. No, you are in that system obeying it so the day will come that you can say to rich people, what will it profit you to gain the whole world but lose your soul? That's the point of staying in that system and obeying. Maybe for you, the wise and obedient thing to do at the moment is to go along with all of equalities and diversity and inclusion stuff that goes on in your workplace. You just obey it. I think many times you don't have a choice. But in that system you're obeying so that when the moment comes, you can say, you know, being loved by God in Jesus means we don't define ourselves by who we're attracted to or how we feel about our bodies. The moment for bravery will come. Maybe you come from a culture where honouring your parents is important. By getting a good job, doing well in life. It's right that you are obedient to that. You don't just throw it all off to do what you want to do. But so you do that, so someday soon you can say, you can speak truth. And say, listen, faith in Jesus means there are more important things than being successful. Or maybe you are part of a social group that's very comfortable for you. You fit right in. And so you've loved hearing what I've said today. Yeah, fit in with the group, go along with them. But we're not doing that for pleasure, simply, for fun, for joy. We're doing that so someday we can speak up and say there's more to life than just having a good time together. 
You know, every single person here actually needs God's help and the help of the church and wise Christians around you to really think this through because there are two different calls here and they seem to pull apart. One of them is to be wise and not cause controversy, but one of them is to be brave and speak up when you have the opportunity. And working out how those two things fit together is complex. I get that. But it's not brave to stick up for ourselves or simply correct people who are wrong. That's not why we're sitting in this system, so we can get more stuff for us. We are sitting in the system so we can give the brave call to faith in Jesus. And so we know the system, so we can say for us, that will mean this and this and this. The way Paul was able to say for Felix, it means righteousness, self-control, and the final judgment. Well, here's Paul's list. I was wise, I was clear, I was obedient, I was brave. I will be honest with you, it's not my list. I would think at various points in my life, I've done one or two of them. And probably sometimes trying to share my faith, none of them. I've deliberately been controversial, I've deliberately fluffed important issues, I've deliberately disobeyed the law because it was fun, and then I've backed off saying the right thing when I could have done. I guess you might be the same. That's why the thing we are always saying here at Christchurch, we repeat it every week, is that what we want people to do is meet Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was wise, Jesus was clear, Jesus was obedient, and Jesus was brave. And yet, we want to be like him in the way we share the faith, but in a sense, we'll always get it a bit wrong. If you have done that, by the way, a really good way to open up another opportunity is to apologise. You know, if you think to my family, wow, I've been a bit in their face, I've just realised that today, you know, call them up this afternoon, say, I got this wrong, I was a bit in your face, or I've backed off saying a difficult thing, like next time you see them, say, I'm really sorry, I should have said this to you before, but here's the difficult thing. You, there is always grace with Jesus, but in the end, if people look to Jesus they won't be disappointed with the messenger. And that's why what we are always about, while we want to talk and we want to learn to talk well, like Paul, we want to offer Jesus. And we want to be loved by Jesus, to be treasured by Jesus, to live in Jesus, because we think that's what will make us more like Jesus. Jesus was always wise. Jesus was always clear, Jesus was always obedient, Jesus was always brave, and it's as we get to know him, we'll learn to be like that too.